Man, I am so excited to begin this year. I know we, we kind of did that last week. We met last week and we discussed kind of how to look back into 2014 and project some 2015 spiritual goals. And I know a lot of you really dug into that because I got text messages and emails and phone calls all week long asking me to kind of explain, now, what do you want me to set in this area and how does this work and tell me what you meant here. So I hope you come into today with a plan for yourself to move forward spiritually coming off of last year. We called last year, 2014, at our church, the year of Jesus. And for 52 Sundays, we dug into looking at who Jesus was. And if you haven't already, reach in the back of your bulletin and pull out your sermon notes so that you can follow along. Because our premise last year that we walked with was this. A clear view of Jesus always gives us a clear view of our place within the plan of Jesus. And this is the goal of why we gather. We're trying to figure out, one, what is the plan of Jesus in the world? And then where, where is my place in that plan? What am I supposed to do within the plan of Jesus? But figuring this out takes, it takes focus. It takes understanding. It takes asking questions. God, what do you want me to do here? God, how do I do this? God, how am I supposed to respond to this? And even the original disciples struggled in understanding what their place was in the plan of Jesus. So 2014 was the year of Jesus, but 2015 for our church is going to be the year of Jesus' church. Because if we want to figure out what our place is in the plan of Jesus, then we have to understand, we have to understand Jesus' church, his mission, his people, and what he's called them to do. If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Acts, because it's where we're going to live all year at Journey Church International. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers have some that you can use or borrow. As they come down the aisle, just wave at them. And if you don't have a Bible, in all honesty, get one from these guys, put your name in it, and, and learn the book of Acts with us this year. But as we turn to Acts 1, we see the story of Jesus' church. In Matthew chapter 16, in a little town on the border of Syria in northern Israel, Jesus was having a conversation with his disciples, and he said, who do people think that I am? Who do people say that I am? And eventually the apostle Peter got around to giving the right answer. He said, listen, you're the Messiah. You are the savior of the world. And Jesus responded to that in Matthew 16, 18. And he said, I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, on this confession that Jesus is the savior of the world, I'm going to build my church. It's the first time Jesus used the word church. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. So Jesus said his church was going to be built. It was going to grow. It was going to go. But then in the book of Acts, we begin to see how that happened. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, we pick up and it says, in my former book, Theophilus. Now I want to stop right there because if we can understand the intimate details of what was just written, it helps us moving through the book of Acts. Let me give you some quick background on the book of Acts. The author of the book of Acts is a man named Luke, who also wrote a biography of Jesus known for his name. If you've ever opened the New Testament, seen Matthew, Mark, Luke, that was Luke. Luke, as we find out, was writing to a friend named Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus was. We don't know where he was from. Many scholars think because of just his name and the title on his name that perhaps he was some kind of government official in the high up Roman government. But Luke, number three, um, wrote a book about the story of Jesus' life for his friend and he addressed it to him. At some point, Theophilus and Luke met each other, and Theophilus must have heard about a church. He must have been invited to church. He must have heard something about this group of Christians, so he asked Luke, what's, what's going on here? What is this church thing? And Luke said, I don't know. I'll figure it out. 
So Luke, who was a historian, said, if you want to know about the church, you have to know about Jesus. So he wrote a letter to his friend that we now have as Luke that just told him about the life of Jesus. And then in his second letter, he said, now that you know who Jesus is, you need to know a little bit about Jesus' church. So the book of Acts is the story of his church. It's a story of his continuing ministry. It's a story of the mission that he started in his time on earth. This would actually be a good place to start if your friends had limitless time. If someone said, hey, I was invited to church, what does that mean? I would say, read the book of Luke, read the book of Acts, because someone was asked that one time, and here was his instruction of helping you understand what that meant. And the book of Acts is, I mean, it's one of the most important books in the New Testament. Many, really most of the New Testament books were written within the chronological framework of the book of Acts. So, I mean, it is New Testament history. Between Acts 1 and Acts 28, Paul wrote the book of Romans. First and Second Corinthians were written. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians were written. First and Second Thessalonians were written. First and Second Timothy were written. Titus was written. Philemon was written. Hebrews was written. James was written. It's possible that First and Second Peter were written. So literally from Acts 1 to Acts chapter 28, we have, we have the whole of the picture of what Jesus started when he started his church. And Luke wants us to know about Jesus' church. So he writes the book of Acts. If you have an old King James version, it'll tell you why the book is called Acts. It's actually called Acts of the Apostles. It's the story of the things the apostles did to start the church. That's why it's called the book of Acts. But Acts 1 says this. In my former book, we know that's Luke, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them. He gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him, and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father set by his own authority. But you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taking from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. You know, as we look at Acts chapter 1, we learn something incredible about Jesus' church. We learn the first message given to Jesus' church after Jesus left was the message of get to work. Get to work. It was the message of the Matthew West song that our team just sang, do something. The first message ever given to Jesus' church after Jesus left planet earth was get to work. Do something. And today as we look at Acts chapter 1 and we begin a year-long study on what Jesus' church looks like, I, I want to show you three things that will shape the narrative not only of the book but where we are as a church and where we believe God is calling us as a church as we get to work. First you need to see this because you may have missed this in Acts chapter 1. When your spiritual focus is on you, 
and on now, you can miss the big picture of what's going on spiritually in the world. When your spiritual focus is all about you, and it's all about now, what you need now, you have the ability to miss the big picture of what Jesus is trying to do in the world. And here's what you need to understand. It's critical to understand Jesus' plan and our place in his plan, or we might accidentally make the entire plan about us. Like if we don't understand what Jesus' plan is and our place in the plan, we might think Jesus' plan is us. And that we are the only thing that's going on spiritually in the world. You and I have met people like this. Their only spiritual thoughts are for themselves. Their only spiritual concerns are for themselves. Their only spiritual needs are for themselves. And it's very easy to get caught up in thinking, if you don't clearly understand Jesus and his plan and your place in it, that Jesus' plan is all about you. And, and there's some... There's some bad news and some good news to this thought. The bad news is this. Most Christians spend a time in their Christian life in this season where it's all about them. They choose a church based on what they want. They choose their friends based on what they want. Everything is really about them. The good news is that you eventually get through this phase. The disciples in Acts chapter 1 were in this phase where they wanted to know what Jesus had for them. This is a stage, a season, unfortunately, of following Jesus that we all go through that's a bit spiritually immature because all we think about is ourselves. It's a stage that's a bit spiritually self-obsessed because if Jesus isn't anything for us, then he's nothing to the world. A lot of your atheist and agnostic friends that you meet, and I have several, have turned atheist or agnostic because of what Jesus didn't do for them. He couldn't do for anyone Else, It was a, because he's not with me, he can't be with anyone else. It's a self-obsessed phase. But it's a, it's a stage we have to work through. All of us have to work through. After three years, the disciples were finally ready to reap the rewards of all their learning and of all their work. They thought it was time to get theirs. We know by their questions. They were like, you know, it's, it's been a long, hard three years. What do you got for us now? And they didn't intend the answer to be more work spiritually and for us to not get to this point or to stay at this point of just always being worried about getting ours or just always wondering what's next for us spiritually is important number two to not misunderstand the gift that jesus gives to his people that jesus gives to his church look at verses four through six this is where the disciples had to be talked through their place in jesus plan It says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift. Say the words of the gift. Circle that in your Bible. Highlight it, underline it, do something. Jesus said he was going to give them a gift. Everybody likes gifts. If you told me after church, hey, meet me in the cafe after everybody's gone, i got a gift for you. I'm going to meet you in the cafe after everybody's gone because you never know what gift it's going to be. People like gifts. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What, what they were asking is, what is the gift? And is it, is it really what we hope for? Is it that we're finally done and we get to rest and rule rather than work? Because all the disciples, when they became disciples, most of them scholars tell us had to have been teenagers maybe the apostle peter was 19 or 20 most scholars think the apostle john was 14 
when he became a disciple for those high school guys in the room and 17 when Jesus went to the cross. They were all young men, but they had all had their bar mitzvah. They had all at the age of 13 turned into a man in their Jewish culture, which means they would have been taught a little bit about the Hebrew Bible or what we call the Old Testament. They would have been taught about the God of Israel. And what the Old Testament teaches us about the God of Israel is that one day the Messiah will come and the Messiah will conquer the entire world and he with his people will rule and reign in ushering God's kingdom and he and his people will sit on thrones and they'll be the most important people in the kingdom. And as the disciples latched on to the ministry of Jesus as the Messiah and they saw himself proclaim himself the Messiah and he told them he was going to give them a gift, they figured that was it. We, like, this is, we get a promotion. We finally get the throne, the rule, the reign. Jesus said, wait for the gift. And they said, is the gift finally going to be to reward us for what we did? But it's interesting because every one of these disciples worked towards seeing the kingdom of God come about. But they never saw what the Old Testament promised in their life. In every personality in the Old Testament that walked with the God of Israel, looked toward the time when the God of Israel would bring his kingdom to earth and they worked into that but they never saw it happen but the writer of hebrews tells us something interesting about people living leaning into the kingdom of god speaking of those in the old testament the author of hebrews said the world wasn't worthy of them they wandered in deserts and mountains living in caves and holes in the ground these were all commended for their faith they did a good job yet none of them received what had been promised since god had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. See, everyone who's come before us, their faith wasn't just about them. It was also about us. And all of us who are here today, our faith can't just be about us. It has to be about who comes next. Because that's how the kingdom of God works. You press in as much as you can, but you do it not just for you, but for those who will come later. To say it another way, the gift of God is not just for us but it's to us for others. Jesus had to help his disciples understand the gift wasn't just for them, it was to them, for others. And it's really interesting when you just begin to lean into scripture and you see what the Bible says as a Christian instead of what culture says is a Christian. Because what if we would see the purpose of our Christianity through the eyes of Jesus? Rather than through the eyes of what a church has told us or our parents have told us or culture or television has told us. What if we just thought of our Christianity with what Jesus says is important about Christianity? We would find that two-thirds of our Christian focus is actually on others. First, we would follow the great commandment because Jesus says we should love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So we would lean in. If we, if we saw the purpose of our Christianity through the eyes of Jesus, we would all work to love Jesus more. We would, number two, we would lean into the Great Commission. We would have a heart to reach people and teach them about God, like Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28. Go into all the nations, teach people about me, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if we just saw Christianity through the eyes of Jesus, we'd say being a Christian means I need to reach people and teach them about Jesus. We'd be pretty, we'd be pretty passionate about the Great Compassion. We'd be aware of hurting people. We'd do something to help them in Matthew 25. 31 through 46, Jesus said, here's how it's going to be at the end times. God's going to separate sheep from the goats. And those true followers of Jesus, here's what they'll look like. They'll have, they'll have always showed compassion. They'll figure out where hurting people are, and they'll do something about it. See, if we saw the purpose of our Christianity through the eyes of Jesus, two-thirds of the purpose of Christianity is actually focused on others. 
What if you saw this not only as the purpose of your Christianity, but the purpose of your life? Because that's where the Apostle Apostle Paul ended up in Galatians 2.20. He said, I've been crucified with Christ and I don't even, I I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. The Apostle Paul said, following Jesus is not just the the purpose of my religion. Following Jesus is the purpose of of my life and if you and I decided to live like this we would all try to figure out how to make every moment of every day count not just for us but for Jesus and for people who needed Jesus we would work really hard to do that we would see number three that the journey spiritually would be more important to focus on than the destination spiritually The problem is we've had a generation worth of altar calls that have called people to heaven, not Jesus. Called them out of hell, not out of selflessness. So the main destination, the main reason for so many people becoming Christians is they want to go to heaven. But Jesus says the journey is more important to focus on than the destination. Look at verse 7. We'll start at verse 6 again for those of you with your Bible open. So they ask him, what's the gift? They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father set by his own authority. But you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now it's important to note that Jesus didn't say restoring the kingdom wasn't important. Jesus didn't say the end times kingdom of God is not important. What he said is that our focus should be elsewhere as we live in mind of the kingdom. What he wanted his disciples to know and what Jesus wants us to know is that it's not just what we get as a Christian, but it's what we do as Christians that makes a difference in the world. Because he told the disciples, I have a gift for you. And they said, ah, cool, what is it? He said, I'm going to give you something, but the power that I'm going to give you is for what you can do in the lives of other people with it. And it's interesting, the scenario, because some of you have been to Israel with me I mean, the Mount of Olives is a very short walk from downtown Jerusalem. And every time I get to the Mount of Olives, I do the exact same thing. My first time on the Mount of Olives on every trip to Israel, I stop and I look up. Because scripture said the last place Jesus' physical body was seen on planet Earth was somewhere right above the Mount of Olives. And scripture says that the place that Jesus will return to on planet Earth is the Mount of Olives. So every time I get to the Mount of Olives, I look up just in case, like like I'm on the front edge of when he's coming. And here's these disciples. Jesus has told them, he's going to give them a gift, but it's going to be for others. And then they go out to the Mount of Olives and boom, he, he raises up and he goes through the clouds. Scripture said they were all looking up. And as they were looking up, two men came and stood beside him. And the message of the angels to the men who were focused on Jesus, but not Jesus' mission. The angels' message to this small little church, about 100 people, little over three years in the making, was simple. The angels came and said, get to work. Look at verse 11 of Acts chapter 1. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? I hope this conversation was, was, was like a little more than this, you know? Like I hope they stood there for like 30 seconds with them looking, like no, them not even being there, knowing they were there. I say, what are, you, what are you looking at? Well, Jesus was there, but... He's not there anymore. Yeah, I don't see anything either. And then they realize they're talking to angels and they said, Men of Galilee, why are you looking into the sky? 
This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. And they reminded him, get to work. Why? The importance and the urgency of the work was simple. Jesus is coming back. Stop standing here looking around and get to work. Jesus, who you saw go, is coming back. Get to work. You know, we live in a Christian world, it it seems like, that tries to train people to stand still and to look up. And to just focus on Jesus and nothing more. Just figure out a way to be one with Jesus and just focus on Jesus and nothing else. But Jesus says, if you're focused on me, here's what I need you to do. Get to work. And there's this big Christian church that's in love with Jesus, but not what he's called us to do. And the angels told the disciples real quick, they're like, hey, snap out of it. He's not there anymore. He's coming back. So get to work. As we focus on the reality, the journey that Jesus is coming back. And we realize as a church that God has blessed us, not just for us, but for those who will come next. As a church, we believe, number four, that it's, it's time for us to build a building. And for a year, we've been working on these plans. We've been moving towards this day. We've been asking God, God, is this what's next for us? And we believe it is. Now, it's interesting as you look at the walk back from the Mount of Olives, we see that for one of the first times, this small church came together to do exactly what Jesus told them to do. These disciples usually weren't real obedient creatures, but they were here, finally. In verse 14, they finally did what Jesus told them to do. It says, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. We see three things. They joined together. This was a group who was not together. Just a few weeks earlier, even amongst the disciples, there was infighting about who would be in charge once Jesus left. This was a group that was not together in spirit. Peter had quit and gone back to his fishing. At one point, Jesus' mothers and his brothers thought Jesus' relationships with his disciples and his ministry was a little over the top, so they tried to get him to quit doing so much ministry. At some point, some of the people who were here in this day had been demon-possessed, and they had shouted out against This was not a group that had ever been together, but here they were, and they were joined together. This is they were all together. They were in the same place, with the same goal, with one mission. You could say that they were on the same page. One of the most used words in the book of Acts is the word unified. They were all moving in the same direction. And this little group of what we find out was a little over 100 people. They'd become a spiritual family. I mean, Jesus' family, his mother and his brothers... Jesus' second family, his spiritual family, his disciples. Jesus' ministry family, those who he had touched in such a radical way. They all came together and now now they were all one spiritual family. And it had taken over a little, it taken a little over three years for this group to come together. To get on the same page. To move in the same direction. But this group was now doing what Jesus told them to do. And they were ready to make a difference in the world. And as our church, as we, as we reflect on Acts chapter 1 and see what God has done at us, as we look at our spiritual family, man, we have to praise God for how God has brought us to today. Because if you look at the history of our church, four years ago yesterday, January 10th, 2011, in 10 inches of snow, five families came over to my house to get on their knees and pray that God would help us start a church in this community that would impact people. I texted those folks last night and just said, four years ago tonight, 
we were on our knees praying that someone would come. We had about 10 people in our church. We had no money. We had no equipment. We didn't own a microphone. We'd never met publicly anywhere. We just we felt led to plant a church in this community. And I said, a day after our four-year anniversary, we're going to take the next step for growing. You look at our church last year, where we've come in those short four years. Last year, our church over, averaged over 460 people every Sunday. 17 Sundays, or almost one out of every three, we had over 500 people in our church. More than 600 people have made spiritual decisions since we started. 130 have been baptized. Last year, 350 different adults volunteered in ministry at our church. 295 adults went to small groups last year at our church. God is growing our little group into a spiritual family. And as we look at how we're trying to become a spiritual community, and as we understand that there's this massive need for us to keep doing what we've been doing, but to do it better, we realize that it's time for us to build. But there's an interesting verse in Mark chapter 22 that kind of nudges us to where our church is headed. Jesus said in Mark 2.22, No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Why do they do that? Wine, in, in the old days, they couldn't put it in a wine cellar and let it age. They had to take the grape juice, and they poured it in a wineskin, which was made of leather that had great elasticity to it. And as they would pour it in there and wrap it up, as that wine would ferment, that wineskin would grow, and when it got to a certain size or a certain date, they would know that it was ready to be drinkable, safe wine, and they would pour it out. But if they poured new wine into that wine skin that had already stretched, the elasticity would be gone, and somewhere in the fermenting process, it would explode. So they had to be sure to always put new wine into new wine skins because the container couldn't hold, the, new, the old container couldn't hold the new stuff. As we've started asking God to bless our church as we move forward into the future, God has shown us that we need a new wineskin. God has shown us that, that we need a building because we, we are just about out of room in this wineskin of this school to keep receiving more blessing. If hundreds more people showed up at church next week, our wineskin would bust, the wine would be ruined, the, the, the way we do church would be ruined. We're not ready for more blessing, but we want God to do more in our church, so we believe it's time for a new building. Now, I've had lots of people ask me lots of questions about this building as they should when we enter a process like this. Probably the most common question is, Christian, why do we need this building now? Why can't we wait? Why don't we build it sooner? Uh, what, what's the rush of right now? Why now do we need a building? For several reasons. First, we feel like we need more space to keep doing what God has called us to do, and we need more time in that space each week to do it well. We know we're at the point as a church where it's time to add much more spiritual development. It's time to add much more classes. It's time to add a good counseling element. It's time to have training sessions. We need time before church and after church and during the week and on Sunday afternoon. We just need a place to do more of what we do and to do it better. We feel like we need a permanent space so that we can do what we do but do it a lot better in every single ministry area. I've had people ask me, What's the, what do you think is the greatest advantage of having our own facility? And for me, the answer to that is, is pretty simple. I believe the greatest advantage of having our own facility is that having a facility of our own will allow us to invest in our future, 
so we can invest more in ministry. My favorite number of the financial history of Journey Church International is 300,000. We've given away or invested more than $300,000 in missions local and global since we began. Probably my least favorite number is 250,000. That's how much we've paid in rent since we began. And we'll spend about another 100,000 this year. And we'll spend about another 100,000 next year. And if we get a green light and everything goes perfect, we'll have spent a half million dollars in rent before we have our own building. Now, that small investment, I'm grateful for every dime we could spend renting places to do church. But when you look at the long-term investments, eventually there's a, there's a tipping point where you're pouring so much money into rent that if you stretch it out over five or ten years, you think, man, if we could one day have our own place that we could own, we could take all that extra money that we don't use to do church, we could give that away too. So there becomes this investing in ourselves so that we can invest in others. And then we believe we need to be a church that's open and available to the community when they need us. Because right now, if somebody in our community has a problem, they can find us about six hours during the week, from 6 a.m. to noon on Sunday. That's, that's when we really get together to do what we do. But who would God send us if we operated six days a week instead of six hours a week? And if we had ministry program that was available for people to step into when they had a need, not when we were able to meet that need. So we're, we're planning to build a building. We've been working on a master site plan for more than a year now on the land that God allows us to buy. We on this master site plan have a 50,000 square foot facility that we're able to lay out with four or 500 parking stalls. We, we've got a great long-term future on this site if God would continue to add to us. But we know we don't need all of that right now, nor do we really want all of that right now. So within that master site plan, we have developed what we see as a phase one, first, that we can afford, and two, that will allow us to do the ministry that we need to do in our building. It's a little less than half of what we can eventually build if the Lord would bless us to keep doing that. It's ministry that we can afford. It's, it's a building that will allow us to do what we do only better, it's a building that will make more room for more people to come who need the ministry of Jesus through our church. And as we met with the city last Wednesday and we began to show them kind of the exterior elevations that we were making and we put together graphing, just, just, a little pic, just little pictures of what could be. And you should see the ones that are in color. I'd have shown them to you today, but I want you to come back in the next few weeks so you can see them. So I'll give you a little more as we go. It's just amazing to see in your head what God wants to do through our church and our community. But I really wanted to show you just the shell of what we believe God's called us to. Because I want you to be focused on the ministry of the vision, not the building of the vision. I want you more focused on who you can bring to be a part of the ministry than what color the carpet will be. I want you more focused on how our church will be more available to help you and your family than what color the side of the building is going to be. And th those things are important. We'll figure all that out. But I want you to lean into the vision of what God has called us to do as a church, to be an Acts 1 church that realizes it's not all about us. Now, we've got some project goals, which, which is where we stop and swallow hard. Because the project that we're facing right now is a $4 million project. And you say, Christian, why, why, why $4 million? Well, that, that number is really based on the building that we believe we need. We, we believe $4 million is the least amount of money we can spend right now 
to create a space that will allow us to do what we do but do it better and that will allow us to create a space so that more people in our community can come and be a part of what we have going on in a really scalable, good way. Uh, we could build bigger. If we built smaller, we couldn't, do the, we couldn't be us. We'd have to change the way we do church. So this project is a $4 million project. So that's a big goal sitting out there for us. For us to build a $4 million building, we have to raise a million dollars, which is really where the rubber hits the road of this project and where we need our church to lean in. Say, why a million dollars? Well, we believe, as we look at these numbers, that a million dollars, one, we believe it's reachable. It's significant, but it's reachable. Second, we believe if we can't raise that much, we're not ready to build. And three, it's the most financially responsible equation to allow our church to move into a building that we can afford without anyone else ever coming or giving. We can build this building based on our current giving, and we can pay the, the financing every month. If not one more person comes or one more person ever gives, we'll never have a financial problem with our church right now. So we didn't want to add a burden to people later, but this is where we need to get to right now. They say, Christian, how are we going, how are we going to raise a million dollars? Man, that's a, that's a lot of money, and it is a lot of money. How are we going to raise a million dollars? What's the plan? What do you see as the plan for us getting to this project? What do you want me to do? I know that's what everyone's thinking. Okay, what do you want me to do? Let me, let me tell you what I'd like you to pray about. One, we need everyone in our church to pray about giving a special gift in addition to your normal giving to help us build a building. We need to continue doing church the way we do church. We need you to keep giving like you give. But in addition to your giving, we want you to pray about something special and extra that you can do to help us build a building. Secondly, we want you to give generously. We want you to think about a, a gift that would be generous. Thirdly, we want you to give sacrificially. We want you to give enough that you have to think, okay, I could use this money elsewhere, but if I sacrifice this, I can help a church be established that will minister for people the decades, minister to people for decades to come. And then number four, I want you to think through the lens of long term. I want you to pray about what you can give between now and August 1st, 2016. Not now, next week, not today, not even this year. And then I want you to pray about bringing the first part of that gift and a pledge for the rest on Sunday, March 1. That's what we're calling Commitment Sunday. Now, if you reach inside your bulletin, we've put these cards in there for you to see but not to fill out today. We just want you to understand the mechanics of what we're asking our church to do as we try to lean into this project. This might just help you clarify a little better what we're asking as we ask people to give a gift and a pledge. What does that mean? You'll see on this top line here that we're saying, what is your total pledge? So if you say, you know what, Christian, above my giving, and here's the cool thing. Some of you are sitting out there and you think, we, like, we've never given to this church. Um, good. Then start and let it all be building. You don't even have to do a, an equation. You can all be building. Um, but you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to give $1,000 above what I normally give. Between now and August 2016, I can give $1,000. Um, you know, that's $75, $80 bucks a month. Uh, I'll, try to give, I'll try to give $150 of that on March 1, and then the rest I'll give between March 1 and 2016. That helps us give you as much time as you need while still allowing us to provide the bank with down payment and early startup cost for this project. So I want you to take that commitment card and have it and hang on to it and pray about it and think about, God, what do you want me to do? But I want to kind of update you on where we stand right now 
to let you know how close we are to seeing this miracle happen. Because we set a big goal, but, but really we've got some big news. Our big goal was that we'd be able to raise a million dollars above our giving so that we could build a building. And I'll be honest with you, in the three and a half years of pastoring this church, I don't know that I've ever felt the weight or the responsibility of anything that we've done as much as I have felt the weight of this project. And not, not the financial weight, but the responsibility to get it right and the responsibility to lead in a trustworthy manner, to lead in a manner that, that you could trust and that you could lean into. You know, I, I didn't ever want to get on the stage and give you numbers that we're guessing at. Well, we think we can do this, and we think we can do this, and everyone give. And then three or four people give huge gifts and no one else gives. And we say, well, we only got 300, so, you know, we're, we're going to buy like an, a ministry RV instead, and we're going to ride around the country and tell people. You know, that, that can almost come off as kind of a bait, a, like a bait and switch. Like you, you want me to give this money, but you've not done your homework. I, so I, I don't ever want to come off as unplanned. I, I don't want to come off as half-cocked. I don't want to come off as as giving you something that I know we can't do. We're not just throwing paint on the wall and say, let's see what the people say. Maybe we can, maybe we can't. I would never walk on this stage and disrespect you like that, to just come and guess. So we said, Lord, give us a process so we can know. We're not going to go to our church until we know. Give us a process that we can know these are our next steps. Because if they're not, we're not, we're not going to do it. We're not in a hurry, but we want to do what God wants us to do. So we started a process in, this, in the fall. September 1, I started on a 40-day prayer journey. In October, I met with the elders of our church. There's six of them with our pastoral advisory team. There's four men on that and with our pastoral staff. And I met with that group of people. And I said, here's what I think God wants us to do. I gave them everything that I just gave you. And I said, if you're behind this project and if you will support this project, we'll move forward. But if you don't want to do it, we won't do it. God, if you want to throw up a stop sign... I'm going to give you 90 days to do that. And I told him, I know you can't do everything, but leaders go first. You're going to have to do the most. And if you're willing to lean in and lead this process, I'll go to the next group of people. But if you're not in it, I'm not in it, we'll just wait. And I said, take a month and pray about it and get back to me. That group of 10 people, plus one friend who doesn't go to our church, who's always asking, how can I help, how can I help, how can I help? I told him what was going on. We got midway through November and $435,000 had already been pledged towards this. So we thought, all right, Lord, we'll keep moving. I told those men, thanks. Don't give it yet because I'm not sure we're ready, but that's what you can do. Great. So we did two focus groups in December and we brought 20 families together and gave them all this and said, here's, here's what we feel like God's calling us to do. These were small group leaders. These were ministry leaders. These are people deeply ingrained, not only in our church, but in the people of our church. And we said, if you think we should do this, then we need you to let us know and we need you to help. If, we, if you don't think it's time for our church to do this, let us know. But if you're in, we need you to give. We need you to help. And then last Sunday night, we met with 57 families in our church. We invited all of our volunteers to a building sneak preview. And we said, we want you to come and see what's going on. And we want to give you all a voice to ask questions, to tell us if you think we're doing something wrong, to let us know if you're behind us, to let us know if you can help. I stand here on the stage today after those meetings. We've only heard back from six of the 57 people that we met with last week. But as of today, $812,000 have already been pledged towards this project. Like, yeah, and you should put your hands together. I mean, that is, that is like unbelievable. 
I wouldn't stand on this stage and tell you we're there if we're not there. But we're almost there. I mean, this church is almost there. We know that we've got to hit a million to push go. And we're really praying that God will help us do more than that. Because anyone who's built or bought anything know it costs more than you think it's going to cost. But we know if we get to a million, we're moving forward. And basically now we're handing you the baton. Like we've run the first few laps of the race. We've tried to build a sizable enough lead that you don't, that you don't even really have to sweat. Like you should have been clapping thinking, thank God I don't have to give so much. Like, I, you know, I thought it was going to be like a massive amount. Like we want you to do the cool down lap. But our final push is $188,000. We need your help. We believe it's time for our church, this little, this little community of believers has come a, become a spiritual family after three years. We believe it's time together with the same mind and same purpose, going the same direction to, to build a facility for our church and for all those who will come after us. And we want you to pray about between now and March 1, what you can do to help. Now, some of you are so excited, you already, you already know, and you're, like, you're thinking about numbers right now in your head. And some of you are so discouraged because you had the worst financial year of your life last year until this year, and this year is going to be worse. And you're thinking, I should, leave, I should leave the church. I can't help, so I should just leave the church. This is not the church for me. Listen, this is a church for you. If you have to sit this one out, we're, we're good. Somebody else is going to step in right now where you're not able to. If you can't give without crushing yourself, don't right now. Pray for us. Help us. Serve. But God will let those who can give know what they're supposed to give, and we'll get it done. And, and we'll catch you on the next one. I promise we've got more vision you can be a part of down the road. But we need your help. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus told his church, i got a gift for you. But it's not just for you, it's to you for others. And if you get focused on Jesus and his plan and your place in the plan, you've got to get to work. And as a church, we want to get to work. But we need your help on this project. So would you pray with us?